And a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. No Kevin today, his computer ate the week that was, but hopefully next week. But we have Nick McClellan and the Substeel, Stuart Rees, looking at the recent Australian story program, Re Sri Lanka. Part two of the recent history of Peru with Sasha Gillies Lakakis. Drones in the Nevada Desert with Brian Terrell. Spencer Zifkak on parliamentary security and more. But first, vaccine apartheid with David Lee. 70%, 80%, these are the figures we hear all the time. No let up to lockdowns until levels reach these levels. And now calls for a booster, sooner rather than later. But what is happening in the global south, particularly the huge continent of Africa? Figures show that 90% of Africans are waiting for the first dose. Another example of apartheid, this time vaccine apartheid, a moral indication of the state of our world. But why is this happening? Who are those contributing? For answers, I spoke with David Legge, a scholar emeritus in the School of Public Health and Human Biosciences at La Trobe University and a member of the People's Health Movement and author of Genocide by Big Pharma, Millions Will Die. David, before we begin to investigate why millions of lives are at risk, what is the People's Health Movement? Well, the People's Health Movement was started in the year 2000. It's a network of health activists, health activist organisations around the world, got um, some kind of presence in about 80 countries including organisations and individuals, it's sort of structured around a, a vision of equitable access to decent health care and to the conditions which make people healthy. People's Health Movement started in December in the year 2000, and that's quite a significant time because WHO had been running this slogan since 1980 called Health for All by the year 2000. In the late 1990s, it was evident that there was no way health was, you know, decent health care and conditions in which populations can be healthy were go was going to be achieved by the year 2000. And so, as opposed to the World Health Assembly, we set up a People's Health Assembly, which was held in uh, Bangladesh, attended by about 1,700 people. And out of that came the People's Health Movement. So since then, it's um, been um, strengthening in different countries. It's largely based in the developing countries in the global south, but looks at uh, policy analysis and activism and campaigning and mobilisation around a wide range of health issues, including, in particular, decent health care, but also action on the social determinants of health, the, the factors which shape the health of populations, including access to decent food, jobs, rewarding, safe employment, etc., etc. What improvements do you believe you've seen over those years? I'm not sure that there's been all that many improvements since, since we started in the year 2000, not because we haven't been effective, because we, I think we have, but because the march of neoliberalism has not been interrupted, 2001 was the year that the great 
huge demonstrations in Seattle, the Battle of Seattle, um, over the World Trade Organization. And the World Trade Organization has gone from strength to strength since then. And there's been uh, implementation of all sorts of bilateral and multilateral um, trade agreements, which kind of lock in the, the structures of globalisation, of neoliberal so-called free trade, which have widened inequality, have deepened a sense of alienation across many, many sectors of many populations, whilst there are continuing improvements being registered in relation to the health care as modern technology gradually finds access, as I say, the widening inequalities continue to be a problem. So in terms of saying what we've done, the People's Health Movement has campaigned for, uh, in the current instance, strongly campaigned around access to COVID vaccines, COVID treatments for the developing countries. But uh, as you know, the um, the problem of vaccine nationalism has been huge with the rich world buying up all the vaccines, the um, vaccine manufacturers deliberately restricting supply in order to keep prices up. Africa is now looking at you know something like a 4% coverage of vaccines, while Europe is at 80% and the US is at 80%, Israel is at 90%. Yeah, the struggle continues. How does the WTO inhibit progress in the health system? Let me take it broadly. First of all, the WTO was introduced in the year 2000, in 1995. The WTO looks after a range of different agreements. Um, let's look at the agreements one by one. One is the gap, the, the liberalisation of trade in, the good, in goods and services. Now, this means that rich world manufacturers have easy access to third world markets, which has had a huge impact on... Uh, local industry development and local employment, local innovation and so forth. So there's one factor which influences health, which is the uh, progressive deindustrialization of many parts of the world, including parts of the global south. Then there's the um, intellectual property rules of the World Trade Organization in the so-called TRIPS agreement, trade-related intellectual property agreement, which gives the drug companies, the manufacturers, the right to um, charge high prices for their products for, for longer, to prevent generic manufacturers from competing. And they exercise these rights with a brutality, which is hard to believe. So, for example, at the height of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa, when there were literally hundreds of thousands of people suffering from AIDS and many, many thousands dying. The drug companies insisted on selling the anti-AIDS medication, the antiretrovirals, for prices which were completely out of reach for most South Africans. This was because those prices yielded the greater profit. In fact, the drug companies were challenged by a massive mobilisation of people, both in South Africa and more widely, and they had to back off and finally adopted a policy saying that trade considerations should not override health considerations. But it was only after this sort of massive response, still staying with your question about how does the WTO impact on health, 
outside the health area, one of the biggest and most important trade agreements is the Agreement on Agriculture, which effectively allows the rich world to continue to subsidise and protect rich world agriculture, which means that the uh, that farmers in developing countries are not able to sell their product or sell much less of their product into the rich world market because the rich world is protecting their own farmers. Not so much in Australia, but certainly in the US and uh, in Europe. And a particular example of this, which is quite current because it's in front of the World Trade Organization at the moment, is the question of fisheries with you know the rich countries sending out these massive flotillas of fishing boats to suck up from the bottom of the ocean and from all possible fisheries all the fish uh, stocks leaving a, a desert in their uh, in their wake which means that the small island states small fisher persons on literal countries and island states are uh, unable to make a living. Countries which depend upon fish, like in the South Pacific, are finding it more and more difficult to get decent quality um, fish. That's because the fisheries of the rich countries are so heavily subsidised. It's not just the rich countries, of course. China is a major uh, fishing power and is um, as poorly registered, regulated as all the other big fishing powers. You ask about the role of the WTO in shaping the popula- health of populations. I've mentioned deindustrialization because of free trade. I've mentioned intellectual property impacting on the price of medicines. I've, in- I've mentioned the uh, role of the agreement on agriculture in uh, protecting rich world markets from developing country producers. And I could go on, but it's, there's a lot there. Well, I'd imagine that the big multinational pharmaceutical companies have done very, very nicely out of this. They've done very nicely out of COVID, yes, indeed they have, meaning that, uh, that the, uh, they're paying their executives huge salaries, they're paying uh, their uh, big dividends to their um, stockholders. Yeah, they're, they're doing very nicely. The, um, what is almost impossible to believe, but you know, believe me, I'm, uh, this is the case, is that they have consistently refused to pump up production capacity to meet the needs of the world. In March in 2020, last year, the WHO asked the big pharmaceutical manufacturers who had decent, who had useful vaccines to share their technologies with other manufacturers so that the production capacity could be ramped up and not only did they refuse, but they, uh, Pfizer in particular sneered at the possibility of actually sharing their technology. And they have been completely supported in this by the governments of the rich countries, which has led to this sort of gross uh, inequality in access to vaccines. By the end of last year, Canada, the US, Europe had all purchased five times as much vaccine as they put, you know, purchased in advance, five times as much vaccine as they needed, which while the COVAX agency, which is run through you know, a, a global network of organisations, which is supposed to be buying up vaccines on behalf of developing countries, poorer countries, has not had enough funding to, to buy those vaccines. 
and the supply has been all sucked up by the uh, by these advanced purchase agreements by the rich countries. The the profits of big pharma in particular, uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer and Moderna and so forth, are based on high prices in the rich world markets, which have been achieved by restricting supply, which has caused the delay in accessing vaccines for millions of people in the developing. Where does the World Health Organisation come into all this? The World Health Organisation, when it was born in 1948, was largely a creature of the uh, rich countries, Europe and North America and so forth. But during the 1960s, um, a whole lot of new, uh, newly independent countries after you know the process of decolonisation and various wars of national liberation, WHO increasingly, in, in particularly in the, w, the World Health Assembly, allows for quite a strong voice for the developing countries. The rich countries have not appreciated this kind of, the presence of this voice and have sought to control WHO in particular through refusing to increase the um, automatic contributions that countries are supposed to make um, and making up for this with tightly earmarked uh, voluntary donations, which they only give to uh, projects which they approve of. So WHO has been seriously hobbled over the decades, the last three, four decades, by this process of making it increasingly dependent on the donors. And that includes the Gates Foundation, the US, Europe, and so forth. WHO can come up with good ideas and this idea that they that the drug companies should be sharing their technologies was an idea which came through WHO but they don't have the authority to make it happen whereas the increasingly the rich countries are, in, are trying to locate various global health uh, functions outside WHO to avoid any kind of accountability to the World Health Assembly, where, um, as I say, developing countries have got a stronger voice. You mentioned that big pharmaceutical companies have not been cooperating very well because they want to keep the money and the profits to themselves. Have other countries been able to step up to the mark and produce their own vaccines? Are there many? Yeah, there are actually quite a few. Um, the Chinese have produced four or five uh, very effective vaccines. They may be not quite as effective as Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, but they're very effective and they're keeping the Chinese population quite highly vaccinated. The Iranians have got a vaccine. The Cubans have produced two or three vaccines and they have started exporting them. There was a, uh, an item on this morning's news about Cuba exporting vaccines to Vietnam. The Russians have got two vaccines, which they also have started exporting. It's kind of interesting that the Western press is consistently negative about uh, Chinese and Russian vaccines and completely ignores the existence of the Cuban vaccines. And then Brazil as well has, has got a vaccine. You know, the availability of these, addition, these different vaccines sort of illustrates the fact that there is actually manufacturing capacity widely distributed in the world pump up the uh, the production of 
the preferred vaccines, WHO preferred vaccines, are things like the Pfizer and the Moderna, the mRNA vaccines, which are, you know, appear to be particularly useful. But nonetheless, many, many countries are completely dependent on Chinese and Russian and maybe in the future uh, Cuban vaccines as well. And thanks to David Lee from the People's Health Movement. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. If Morrison had wanted to put the cat among the pigeons with his announcement of scrapping the French sub-deal and instead going with the US and the UK, he couldn't have arranged it better. And then off to see his mates in the US and UK, leaving his party to pick up the pieces. Today, Pacific expert Nick McClellan, who is also a journalist and researcher, is looking at what he believes are the real reasons behind the decision. But first, the reactions. Look, I think there were countries that obviously were going to be angered or concerned about uh, this. Beijing obviously sees uh, this as uh, further integration of Australia into US nuclear warfighting capacities. The French were understandably uh, peeved. Um, They called it a stab in the back because um, President Macron's Indo-Pacific strategy is a major component is arms sales, as we've talked about on the program many times. So a $90 billion contract being ripped up, uh, obviously, uh, is a cause for concern in Paris. But what we've seen is also uh, expressions of concern, even diplomatically phrased, from a number of neighbours in the Asia-Pacific region, from Malaysia and Indonesia to New Zealand and others, uh, including Pacific Island countries, There's concern that this uh, uh, new Australia-UK-US partnership is, uh, you know, heading against the tide of concern about the need to move away from confrontation in the Asia-Pacific region. And, you know, once again, uh, uh, the Morrison government is heading in the wrong direction in terms of trying to, you know, end the competition and containment of China that is a central part of uh, US policy. No, you've picked up the fact of that, that they're going to have a training of submariners in um, Western Australia. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, the the proposal is that we will ultimately construct up to eight uh, nuclear-powered submarines based on models, either the, the British Astute submarine or the American Virginia-class attack submarines, both of which have uh, uh, nuclear-powered reactors to to provide propulsion. Now, to do that is uh, a massive challenge because Australia has no domestic nuclear industry beyond the research reactor at Lucas Heights. You know, to have to train up submariners to uh, um, staff and crew these submarines will take a long time. Um, It may need a whole industry based around, you know, nuclear safety, nuclear protection, even though the uh, proposed reactors essentially come as a sealed unit uh, to plug in. But this is all decades into the future. Um, the first submarines uh, to, won't appear for a long time. And what's being proposed instead is that the United States and United Kingdom might base submarines in Australia uh, under the guise of training our submariners to, to operate uh, nuclear-powered uh, submarines. And we'd 
only be one of very few countries in the world to have nuclear-powered submarines. Indeed, if this goes ahead, Australia will be the only country without a nuclear power industry, and indeed, in many cases, without nuclear weapons, to have nuclear submarines. It's a major strategic shift. It's got all sorts of imponderables. But uh, I think the, the more important part of this is not that the subs are going to come, which may take decades, literally decades, before they're off the, uh, off the blocks, but that the United States and Britain are looking at basing submarines uh, on a regular basis and rotating other aircraft, submarines, troops and so on through Australia in the next decade or so. And at a time where there's growing US-China tensions, uh, this is, if, if we need it any more, locking Australia further and further into US strategies for the region. Does this mean a new foreign base in Australia or they use an existing base? Well, it might. And this is a question. Um, currently, Stirling, a uh, base at uh, Fremantle in Western Australia, is used for port visits by uh, American uh, vessels uh, and other allied vessels. It, given the geography, um, one of the reasons why uh, the United States is eager to, to extend Australia's role in this partnership rather than, say, France, is not just the competition over who gets the contracts for building submarines, but also purely for reasons of geography. So to base uh, uh, through Western Australia, possibly through Darwin, even through Brisbane, these are all things that will be, there'll be pressure in coming uh, years to expand uh, um, the access to ports the question of actually having a base is even more substantial. And one of the things that's come out beyond the submarine discussion out of recent ministerial meetings in Washington with Peter Dutton and Maurice Payne and their counterparts in Washington has been the notion that there will be an increased uh, deployment of US assets, logistics, equipment in Australia. So, for example, fuel, ammunition, other technological supplies will be stored in Australia rather than in uh, Hawaii, which is the current uh, headquarters of the US Indo-Pacific Command for the US military, or in Guam, where there are major US military bases in, in Micronesia, in the Western Pacific, being in Australia, having equipment, supplies, fuel, logistics, technology, maintenance and spares, all this sort of equipment allows more rapid deployment of US assets, naval assets, ships, submarines, uh, and so on, than uh, sending them from the west coast of the USA or from Hawaii. It's a matter of geography. And many years ago, when he was talking about US bases in Australia like Pine Gap, the late Des Ball wrote a book called A Suitable Piece of Real Estate. And when we're talking about Indo-Pacific, the Indian and Pacific Oceans, Australia is a very suitable piece of real estate. And you only have to look at a map to realise that. That's why this is such a, an important strategic choice where... You know, the Morrison government is going all in with American strategy. Well, Nick, if this is not preparing for war, what is? It's pretty muted, but it's clear that many countries will be watching this with a close eye in terms of what it means. You know, there's a commitment that, you know, Morrison's admitted that building nuclear submarines and, and the further integration of the Australian Defence Force into US nuclear warfighting strategies will come at a, a significant cost, indeed more than the cost that was proposed for the French submarines, which were not billion dollars. And, you know, the optics of this have really annoyed a lot of people, even though they're not coming out and condemning it publicly. 
you know, here we are just a month or two away from the Glasgow negotiations on the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, you know, what's called COP26, the Conference of the Parties for the Global Climate Talks. You know, Australia is under enormous pressure, not only to reduce its emissions, but also to increase its climate funding to developing countries in our region, in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific. Is, is only committed over 21, over the next few years, to spend about 25% of our fair share of the global target of $100 billion in climate finance. So the optics of Scott Morrison saying, well, we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars, you know, $100 billion plus on nuclear submarines at a time where other countries are saying, hang on, our security challenges are different. Where are the resources being put into the, the security threats that we face? And the greatest security threat for our Pacific neighbours is climate change. You know, this is, this is uh, a, a real concern. Obviously, too, for working people in Australia, we, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic where there's an enormous pressure on our health services, where there's a, a significant challenge about implementing our vaccine rollout, about building quarantine uh, facilities into the future to allow people to move in and out of Australia safely for this and future pandemics. There are significant costs to address people's human security and those costs are facing us now. And yet the government is putting us on a pathway to spend billions and billions of dollars over the next two decades to integrate the Royal Australian Navy even further into US uh, nuclear warfighting strategies. Uh, it's no surprise that neighbouring countries are raising concern. Uh, New Zealand says that these nuclear submarines won't be allowed to operate in New Zealand waters nor enter New Zealand ports. There's a bipartisan policy, both from the Nationals and New Zealand Labor, uh, to maintain the nuclear-free status that's existed in New Zealand since 1987. You know, Vanuatu, one of Australia's closest neighbours, is a non-aligned country that has declared itself nuclear-free since the early 1980s. Both New Zealand, Vanuatu, Fiji, nine Forum Island countries, Thailand, have ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So the discussion around these nuclear submarines is framed by the sense that the US-China strategic competition needs to be addressed in different ways, rather than encouraging an arms build-up in the region. And, um, you know, it's clear that, that uh, even if people aren't coming out to condemn it straight up, as some countries have, there's going to be uh, a lot of concern about the pathway that this government is trying to force us onto. What are you hearing from the people in the Pacific? People in Pacific Island, civil society, church, community networks are furious. Um, the General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, Reverend James Bugwan, uh, put out an immediate statement saying, shame Australia, shame. Um, he said, you know, Scott Morrison has talked a lot that Australia is part of the Pacific Vuvale, the Pacific family, that's a Fijian word for family. And he says, you know, family members don't act like this. Uh, you know, other community groups, NGOs and so on, have been very critical about this, particularly, at a, say, at a time where they're calling on Australia to do more about the, the, the threat coming from climate change that they see as a greater threat than Chinese human rights abuses, Chinese uh, militarisation of our region and so on. And, and I was struck even 
by, uh, you know, Fiji, for example, hasn't put out a formal government statement about the submarines. Papua New Guinea hasn't issued a major statement, but Prime Minister James Marape was interviewed on, on uh, radio recently. And he said, look, submarines, that's a matter for Australia. It's their defence policy, their business. But Papua New Guinea will maintain its policy of friends to all, enemies to none. So PNG's foreign policy, policy explicitly says we want to have a partnership with Australia, our closest neighbour. We want to have a partnership with the United States, with France, with other countries, but also with China, with Korea, with uh, Malaysia, with others. And, you know, a friends to all, enemies to none policy, which is what non-aligned countries like Vanuatu and Fiji, what our largest neighbour in the Pacific PNG propose, goes very much against the fact that the Anglosphere powers, the United States, Britain and Australia, have now forged a new strategic partnership. It's a telling sign. And the nuclear issue, you know, a lot of commentators in Australia in the think tanks and so on are saying, oh, it's not about nuclear weapons, it's not about a domestic power industry, uh, it's just about nuclear submarines. Well, already out of the blocks, people are pushing for a domestic nuclear power industry to provide the infrastructure to train people, to provide safety mechanisms and so on for the nuclear submarines. Um, you know, the Minerals Council of Australia, who've never uh, hidden their desire to mine more uranium, to have a nuclear power industry in Australia, the day after Morrison's announcement called for a domestic nuclear power industry. Clive Palmer, Matt Canavan, Barnaby Joyce, Craig Kelly, all of the right-wingers in the firmament, even more right-wing than Scott Morrison, are calling for a domestic nuclear power industry. So the Prime Minister can stand up and say, this is not about a power industry for Australia, but you only have to read the letters pages of The Australian and, and listen to key right-wing politicians that they see this strategic choice about nuclear submarines as intimately tied to expanding a nuclear industry in Australia. And that doesn't go down well for our neighbours. Just two quick statements that have come in the last couple of months from the Pacific. The first is a very strong statement from the Pacific Islands Forum around Japan's plan to dump radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean from the stricken Fukushima reactors. You know, Japan has been storing contaminated wastewater that they've treated um, from uh, uh, cooling the melted down uh, fuel rods in the Fukushima power plant and have announced a plan in the next couple of years to start dumping millions of tonnes of water into the Pacific. Pacific Islanders worried about the perception and reality of contamination of fishing grounds of the, the Moana, culturally, uh, the Pacific Ocean, as a source of cultural identity as well as economy, are furious and have spoken out against this. Similarly, on the, uh, uh, in, in August, just uh, last month, Prime Minister Baini Marama of Fiji, who's the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum at the moment, issued a major statement, a speech, on the UN International Day Against Nuclear Testing. It's an international day to commemorate the radioactive legacies of Cold War nuclear testing. And as we've talked about many times on this program, that's a big thing for the Pacific, more than 310 nuclear tests across the Pacific. And Baini Marama talked about the nuclear atrocities inflicted on Pacific peoples. He talked about the need for 
forum member countries, including Australia, to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the new Nuclear Abolition Treaty that came into force in January this year. He talked about seeing the Blue Pacific Continent as a nuclear-free continent. So Bainimarama hasn't said anything publicly yet about the submarines, but you only have to look at that speech. And this is from a former rear admiral and commander of the Fiji military forces, not some NGO activist, to sense that across the Pacific, there's a deep unease about the pathway that Morrison is setting Australia on, and that has, to a certain extent, uh, bipartisan support from sections, key sections of the Australian Labor Party. You mentioned the speech, I think it was, by the Prime Minister of PNG saying about Australia's defence policy, but surely, in reality, this is not Australia's defence policy. This is the US defence policy that we're supporting. It's very much the integration. And I think one of the things that, that's missed in the discussion of the submarines is other elements of the AU, you know, the AUKUS partnership, as it's called. You know, they say very clearly that the submarines is the first initiative, quote unquote, the first initiative of this partnership. And a lot of it's to do with technology transfer around other areas, such as cyber warfare, intelligence sharing, uh, artificial intelligence and the use, development of weaponry driven by artificial intelligence. It's about a whole range of space technology and the danger of Australia being integrated into the militarisation of space, outer space. AUKUS is, is sort of a framework. And look, it's early days yet. I mean, let's remember, there's a bit of theatre about this and part of its purpose is to wedge the Labor Party in the lead-up to, uh, to the election. But nonetheless... This is about future possibilities. And as I say, it's a pathway, and it's a question about how much we go down this pathway or how much we uh, engage in other uh, ways of addressing the changes that are going on in our region, economic, political, strategic, and environmental. Um, it's locking us into a pathway with the United States, particularly. And, you know, it's a big gamble given that um, the, there's real questions about what will happen next year. In November next year, uh, the US goes to what they call the midterm elections. The House of Reps, the US Senate, loses control of the US Senate, and it's literally 50-50 at the moment. They don't have any margin for manoeuvre. Then Biden's agenda will be on hold if the Republicans have their way. And the Americans go to elections, presidential elections in 2024, that's going to be um, a significant challenge as to whether the Democrats can, can maintain their hold or whether some sort of Trump-like Republican isolationist will come back in. It's a big gamble to gamble on the US alliance at a time that the US has just been beaten like a gong in Afghanistan and, and withdrawn ignominiously from, from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, wars that we supported as a country. You know, the gamble on America being a firm alliance partner over the 20 years it's going to take to build the nuclear submarines is a big gamble. There's also other key elections all around the region in the next year or so. France goes to elections next April, President Macron. That's another reason why the French feel stabbed in the back. The Indo-Pacific strategy is a key component of Macron's re-election campaign. And, the you know, the brutal reality that the Americans have chosen us over the French is, is hit home in Paris. Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, many other countries have got elections next year. So we're going to see significant dynamic change in the region. And 
for Morrison to try and lock in this sort of strategic direction and drag the ALP uh, into this strategic direction is a very significant step uh, just months out. Does the ALP need dragging in or is it already there? Well, there's still a fight in the ALP. Um, for example, Australian Labor Party national policy is that they will sign and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. You know, 75% of the ALP caucus says that they'll support the TNW, which is a nuclear abolition treaty and says you shouldn't assist in the development, deployment of nuclear weapons. And that's certainly what nuclear submarines contribute to. But key people in the ALP, from Deputy Leader Richard Miles to uh, Shadow Foreign Minister uh, Penny Wong, don't support the TPNW, don't support ALP national policy. So, um, you know, this is, this is where there's a, a, an issue. And people like Richard Miles have been quite open. And uh, I interviewed Richard Miles about his new book on the Pacific uh, recently. There's no secret about it that the US alliance still frames uh, ALP uh, defence and strategic policy, even though they've got concerns about the cat-handed way that the Morrison government has managed to piss off the French so much that they won't even, Macron won't even take a phone call from our Prime Minister. You know, Penny Wong says, oh, we'll do it better. But they're not really talking about challenging the framework where the alliance drives our strategic direction into the 21st century. And, you know, call me old-fashioned, but I would have thought that the, the level of engagement around climate policy by 2040 might be more significant than uh, the debate about submarines being built by 2040. In 20 years' time, the climate emergency is going to completely transform the Asia-Pacific region. So, uh, you know, the, the lack of serious debate in the Australian Parliamentary Press Gallery about what the next couple of decades are going to mean is stark. I mean, everyone's talking about net zero by 2050. How about some discussion about what are our climate targets for 2030? A climate emergency that faces us in the next decade, not whether the nuclear subs are going to be, where they're going to be deployed by 2040. Well, we've talked about everything virtually, Nick, except China. Well, it's, it's an important part of the equation and people shouldn't have any illusions about the current regime in Beijing. But this monolithic notion that China is, one, all-powerful, two, rising inexorably to, to world dominance, and three, not engaging with the global challenges, I think all three of those are wrong. I think there's enormous issues to take up with China's human rights abuses and you only have to look at what's happening in Hong Kong and with the Uyghur and so on. It's a significant problem. But I think people need to read more about China, think more about China, such an incredibly complex, enormous society. I read an interesting piece the other day, for example, by a defense analyst who was very critical of China, but saying, listen, the Chinese haven't fought a serious war in a long, long time. They have border skirmishes with India, but they haven't fought a serious war. And that China's defense force, the People's Liberation Army, is full of the children of single parent families. So just as America has been worn down by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which have really decimated the US Army and Marine Force, cause of concern about casualties, imagine if every 
Chinese mother and father is worried about their only child going off to fight over Taiwan. The only things we've read in the papers for the last week about China are the enormous fiscal crisis it's facing over its housing industry with Evergrande and other major Chinese-backed corporations um, facing massive multi-billion dollar debts in the housing industry. And people don't talk a lot in the strategic think tank community in Australia about the contradictions of Chinese growth patterns, worker discontent, where over the last decade you've seen massive strikes and disputes amongst Chinese workers over the austerity policies that have forced them into you know, multinational factories. The enormous environmental challenges that China faces, as does everyone in the world, around the climate emergency, about water supply, around agriculture, around energy. China is, is facing the same sort of fiscal challenge about the transition to renewable energy that everyone else in the world did, but a country of more than a billion people. But China's an ageing population. China's population might shrink by 300 million people by 2050. So this notion that China is all-powerful and ready to take over the world and we need to do, you know, needs to be tempered with some analysis about the contradictions that China faces. And I think this panic and scaremongering is, is fascinating. Think tanks. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute is funded in part by US and French arms manufacturers. <laughs> Indeed, the great irony is that the Aspie Strategist website is uh, sponsored by Naval Group, the French submarine corporation that we've just told to rack off. So they're going to have to find some more funding for the Aspie Strategist from somewhere else. Uh, Lockheed Martin might have to step up their contributions uh, a bit more. China is a significant economic and strategic power in this century and will be. Everyone in the world is positioning themselves about how to engage with that. And there are different ways to engage with Chinese power. But uh, uh, some of our neighbours feel that they can engage with power without going the path, down the path of bolstering nuclear warfighting strategies. And that's, um, that's where uh, Australia is standing against the tide. Finally, Nick, fear-mongering is very successful, though, isn't it? We live in a, an age where uh, people's assessment of risk is confused by propaganda, confused by misinformation, confused by uh, social media. You, know, you only have to look at the stupidity that we see of the, the rioters in the streets in Melbourne and the way the state responds to a worrying sign. You know, there's a failure of leadership in parts of the Australian trade union movement where here we are 18 months into a pandemic where hundreds and hundreds of people have died in Australia. Millions have died around the world and there's still an argument about whether vaccination is still valuable. There's a, a real need to recreate places for debate, discussion and risk assessment about what are the real risks that we face in our homes, in our workplaces and on the international stage. And um, I, for one, think that the resources that should be pumped into the COVID recovery uh, and climate change far outweigh arms spending. But call me old-fashioned, I want to spend money on butter rather than guns. Thank you, Jan. And many thanks to journalist and researcher, Nick McClellan. 3CR Today, a focus on an influential former politician, both in state and federal parliaments, resigned in 2007 from the Senate to spend three years as Australian ambassador to Italy. 
got herself a job as host of the Current Affairs program on Radio National, Counterpoint, and until recently, a regular commentator for a major newspaper, and I believe continues to sit on the board of Lockheed Martin, Australia's leading weapons maker. Not actually someone going without. This is the same woman who, on a recent Australian story program, on that same ABC, was discussing a desperate family here in Australia facing a very uncertain future if we turn to Sri Lanka. And of course I'm speaking about Ms Vanstone. Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees watched this program. But before we look at Ms Vanstone, how well do you believe the Australian Story team put the program together? I think about 8 out of 10 actually. I mean I thought it was comprehensive. They showed the generosity of the people in Billalee who cared for them. They showed the cruelty from the, um, from the government side. I'm not sure what I missed. What did you think? Courage is a, a word you use a lot, and I sort of think that, that the ABC's got a bit of courage when they continue to put these sort of programs to air. Yeah, no, I agree. No, against, I agree. Against what the government would like. Yeah, because uh, just about everybody I've spoken to was, was very distressed about that program, came away sort of sickened by the behaviour of the government, which is why I immediately wrote that. I thought, I can't watch any. I can't watch Four Corners um, after this. I need to write this article, which is why I immediately wrote the article in exasperation. Madam Vanstone, all the privileges of the world against a, a family who have nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the top... It's the what I call, you know, the top-down privilege of these people who think that they can make judgment of, judgments about the lives of other of powerless people. It's, it's absolutely abhorrent. She doesn't see it, and neither because, you know, I I started to say that this has been going on for ten years, and then I thought, no, 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 this, that's wrong. It's been going on for two hundred years, and it just happens that this poor unfortunate. Murugapan family have been caught up in it. And they're determined, aren't they, the government, to destroy them, I would think. Even this morning, I mean, this notion that he gives a visa to three of them but denies one to the four-year-old. So revenge is in the DNA of these conservative people, these so-called Christians. It, revenge and cruelty is in their DNA. They're going to have to lose face by trying to find a spark of kindness, well, they can't bring themselves to do it. They have to determine that these that these people can't return to, to Villa Lea, and they've got to stay in detention in Perth. I haven't read the newspapers this morning. I don't know whether anybody in the mainstream is is saying this is it's not just absurd; it's cruelty taken to infinite lengths. Stuart, I think you should go to Canberra and and see if you can get into one of their pre-parliament prayer meetings and see if you can yeah. talk, talk to these people. Yeah, the fact that a majority of them in the cabinet are supposedly evangelicals, I don't know where they... I, I mean, they're stuck in the Old Testament, the saviors of, of the Old Testament, which is what I attributed to, um, to Morrison. Does anybody challenge these beliefs? Does anybody say, look, in the short time that is apparently left for planet Earth, why do you behave like this? 
that's the kind of language that's been used. And I'm not sure that Labour is putting, even putting a hand on their shoulder. I mean, I know Labour has said, I think, that they will um, return the family to Bill Alain, but we need to give them citizenship, you know, by the weekend. That's what we need to do. I spent time in the middle of that terrible civil war in Sri Lanka, so I have some idea of the cruelty, the slaughter that's meted out to the Tamil people. Look, 40,000, probably 100,000 were slaughtered and disappeared at the end of the war. Tamils. It's all to be brushed over and forgotten. And uh, the Australian Australian government, successive ones, have made the false claim that it's completely safe to return people to uh, Tamils to live in Sri Lanka. And that's um, completely false. And the government full well knows the situation of both the the mother and the father and what they went through. Absolutely. But then they don't care about that because we're there. If you've lived a life of privilege, then the kind of conversations, Jan, that you and I are having at this moment probably never occurred in the biography of the Amanda Vanstones and, and uh, Alex Hawkes and company. Never, ever. You must be disappointed in the Labour Party. Look, yeah, I want them to have, a, you know, a, a touch of courage. I only want them to take it, you know, once a day after after meals and swallow it. Because I've said, when I've met some of them, I mean, look, this is good for you. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. I don't know why they don't have that courage. I mean, even Paul Keating has come out this week to say over their, their attitude to uh, nuclear submarines, for God's sake, let's to tread a different path. You don't have to be wedged in to imitate this dreadful government. We can't. I mean, Labour seems to be wanting to present itself as coalition light. That's not the alternative. That's not the humanitarian alternative. Just in case there's people listening to this who haven't been listening over the years to what happened in Sri Lanka over those many, many years, particularly the last six months, what was your experience? Well, the experience was of, of a savagery beyond belief that that Rajapaksa, the the man who led the um, led the Sri Lankan government, became president. That was was the complete elimination of the Tamils. I mean, there had been a deep racism that had lasted for for centuries towards the minority Tamils. Now, I'm not holding a brief for the Tamil Tigers, but they were the independence movement. Obviously, the father in the Tamil, the Bilalea family, was dragooned and without option into being of the Tamil independence movement. But there's no, there's no capacity for reflection. There's no capacity in Australian government circles. No capacity for, for reflection. No capacity for understanding. No capacity for communicating to themselves and others about the brutality that was part of the ending of the civil war in Sri Lanka. It was a brutal civil war, and I think the evidence will show that 100,000 people disappeared, and and until recently, nobody is to be held accountable for it. And the Australian government likes to behave as though it never happened. And the Rajapaksa are back in power. Absolutely, they're back in power. I mean, it's mostly invisible to us because there's not much reporting on on Sri Lanka in the same way there's not much reporting on 
what's happening to the West Papuans. But, uh, you know, Australia, for the sake of, you know, likes to collude, but likes to paper over the cracks and, <laughs> and present an image of, of, a, of, a, of a country concerned with human rights. And that's false. We need a glimmer of truth being presented to voters. Well, it is colluding with the Sri Lankan government and has been for years by turning the boats round and sending those uh, people back to a very uncertain future. Sure, and, and, fund, and funding coastal boats to um, you know, either stop people coming or um, contain them and arrest them. So, yeah, the turning back brave Australia, brave, brave Australia with its military operation to protect borders. There are, in a, pan, in a, in a global pandemic, in uh, climate disaster parts of history, there are no borders. They need to get that out of their, uh, out of their thick heads in Canberra. Well, I just finished, Stuart, by saying that um, good out to the ABC and hopefully their producers continue to have programs on like this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I should have sent a copy of my article to them. I don't know whether the, the Pearls and Irritations platform reaches Ultimo, which is the AB Studios in Ultima. I hope it does. Well, it reaches here in Melbourne. Come on. <laughs> well, that's it then. We've done it. Okay, thank you. All right, lovely to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. Do get on to Pearls and Irritations, an online journal about social policy. And Stuart has a, a fairly regular spot. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Weeks after the event, the Pentagon admitted to the long obvious fact that once again, Afghan civilians, this time 10, seven of them children, were obliterated in an airstrike in Kabul. A tragic mistake, they said, after initially lying about it, omitting to say that this was not an isolated so-called mistake of America's drone assassination program. Internationally acclaimed journalist Glenn Greenwald wrote, quote, There was nothing unusual about what the US did in Afghanistan extinguishing a whole family, and then getting friendly with the New York Times and NBC reporters to verify their lies that they killed terrorists, but no civilians, except that time the world was watching, unquote. Activist Brian Terrell, who coordinates band killer drones, has been watching for many years, and at the moment is up close. Brian, where exactly are you, and, and what are you doing there? I'm at a very pivotal place in the world here. It's a very, very desolate. I'm in the Nevada desert, uh, just a few miles up the road from Creech Air Force Base, which is the headquarters for the CIA and the U.S. Air Force drone program. It's been metastasizing all over the earth. But I was first here in 2009. This is one of the only places where they were operating drones from. I arrived here last night, and this morning... Five of us went down to the uh, 30 miles up the road from us here is the nuclear test site, which was stolen from the Western Shoshone people uh, at the end of World War II. You know, it's called the most bombed place on Earth. There have been, you know, many, many above ground 
nuclear tests and below ground, and they're currently doing what they call subcritical tests there. So today, as the United Nations recognizes today as the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. Some of us, even though it's a Sunday morning, there's not a lot of business, even where they're testing nuclear weapons. Uh, but we went this morning with some signs and banners and uh, commemorated the day, got to talk with some of the National Nuclear Security Agency police who came to, to see what we were doing. And we are preparing for a week of starting tomorrow, a week of daily protests at Creech Air Force Base. What's it look like from where you are? Uh, not very far from a beautiful spring. And I can see the in the distance that we're surrounded by mountains in all directions. I set up my tent among a lot of uh, some Midwestern. I don't know all these plants, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of, you know, it's, it's desert, high desert. It's very, very warm and very dry. Yeah, it's um, quite beautiful. You've been arrested there before, haven't you? Many times. I was in the first, in 2009, the first time that, that, that I was at Creech was when we just began to be aware of the drone program. There have been drones since, you know, in the 1990s. The United States was using drones in uh, Kosovo and other places. The U.S. was the, you know, pioneer in this. There's another weapon systems that have proliferated since. But they were used for, uh, only used for surveillance until... Actually, it was October 7th of 2001 was the first time that they fired a missile from one, that people used these predator drones. Somebody decided, well, you could put a missile on this. And they, uh, on that day, uh, somebody in probably here in Nevada thought they saw Mullah Omar, how he would know someone in Nevada would know him. I don't know. And uh, fired a missile and... Uh, if he was there, he escaped because he was killed in another drone attack many years later. But two unidentified people were killed, and he escaped. And from the very first drone strike, they were mistaken identities. That's continued. We know there have been other drone strikes other places, but the last one in, in Afghanistan was on the 29th of, of August. You know, 10 people none of whom were intended targets of the Hellfire missile fired from a drone, uh, seven of them children, the Ahmadi family. And it turns out that uh, Mr. Hamadi, the father of this family, was uh, working for a California-based NGO called Nutrition and Education. And what the people from watching the drone, again, presumably from uh, Nevada, but at this point it could have been many other places, many other places, saw Mr. Ahmadi driving around town in his business. And he had also, because and I've been to Kabul several times and much of the city does not have potable water. At one point, he picked up some canisters of water and put them in the back of his car to bring home to his family. Somebody watching from a drone decided that this was uh, some kind of explosive that he was packing into his car and decided that this was an imminent threat, that this was another attack. Uh, a few days earlier, there had been an attack on the, uh, from ISIS-K, a suicide bomb attack at the, at the airport at Kabul, that this was another, another attack. And yeah, fired a Hellfire missile and uh, killed him and his family.
the difference here is that what makes us unique for those of us who've been following this, uh, the world was shocked, but I think for many of us, we were shocked just by the routineness of it, that this was, this was horrible, but it was horrible, not because we'd never heard of such a thing, but it was horrible because we know that it happens all the time. The difference is that there were uh, international press. This is Kabul. This was not the Hindu Kush mountains. This was not the province of Wardak or, you know, the Panjshir. This was not the mountains of Pakistan. This was not Waziristan. This was in Kabul where there, there was a lot of media attention because of the U.S. leaving. The horrible thing, uh, General Smiley, the head of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, came on television and he said that it was a righteous strike, his word. And he said, all due diligence was given that the United States was absolutely certain to every degree possible that this was a terrorist and that they stopped a worst terror attack. And they blamed the death of the children on secondary ex- explosions, saying that there were, uh, that it was the explosives that were in the back of Mr. Ahmadi's car that that really caused the death of the civilians. And there's nothing the U.S. could have done about that. Well, the story fell apart, but in a sense it didn't, because as we learned more about it, in U.S. terms, this was a righteous strike. The people who committed this this murder were acting in the same due diligence that they use all the time. You know, this is not the fog of war. This is people making decisions from far away who are not in any danger themselves, and they're not, they're not terrorized, not, they're not hearing explosions, uh, they're not missing sleep. These are decisions made by people who eat their supper in their own homes and sleep in their own beds and, and go to work in the morning uh, after, a, after a good breakfast and with a cup of coffee on the side are deciding these, making these decisions. You know, we know from uh, Daniel Hale, the whistleblower who's now in prison, that military knows that more than 90% of those who are killed in these strikes are not targeted. And remember, people are targeted on the very flimsiest of reasons. It may be said that Mr. Hamadi himself was targeted, even though he was falsely targeted. He still was one of the targeted. So maybe the 90% uh, uh, does hold in this case because there were 10 people killed and they were after, after a man who was an innocent man, but they were still after him. And this is what, you know, the CIA, this is counterproductive in terms of the United States is making more enemies. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who was head of the, under Obama, was head of the U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, told Rolling Stone magazine, he got fired for this, uh, that for every innocent person we kill in a drone strike, the United States creates 10 new enemies. So this is not a surprise to them that that these drone strikes are making Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, every place they're used, Pakistan, that it doesn't make things more secure for people there. It doesn't make people safer in the United States. In fact, they know the opposite is true, that it just creates more and more resentment and more instability and more terrorism. General Atomics and uh, that makes the drone and Raytheon that makes the bombs uh, the other arms manufacturers have done very, very well out of Afghanistan, that uh, creating new enemies, creating more instability in these places. In the words of the uh, CEO of Raytheon Corporation back in January, when there was fear that, that uh, the U.S. would stop selling weapons to the Saudis, 
assured his investors saying, uh, don't worry, the peace is not going to break out anytime soon and the Middle East remain an area of solid growth. So it's remaining solid growth. And uh, Mr. Biden, the president, promises that there will be more of these and that this is actually what's going to be, um, he calls it, war being fought from over the horizon, a very easy kind of war to fight. And it's a thought, mostly it's a very, it's a war that does not bring, it's not politically risky for a politician to order a drone strike where our own soldiers are uh, not safe from the moral injury of war. Like the drone operators, I think, uh, suffer, you know, because of their distance from their victims, uh, maybe even more psychological damage than the soldiers who are fighting in combat. But you don't measure that. A politician's uh, ratings don't go down because of a drone strike, even even one as tragic as this one. Unless people in the United States and the world stand up and, and say, oh, we're going to tolerate this. That's the direction that war is going to is going to take. And it's going to be I, I feel like the war this over the horizon war by machine is actually making war. Uh, that much easier, in a sense, uh, more intractable. So we have to draw the line. The world is following this. Everybody is building drones now. They're being used very, very differently in the, the war between Azerbaijan and uh, and Armenia last year, about this time. Bar- Azerbaijan was using drones that they had procured from Turkey. And unlike the United States, where almost all of U.S. drone strikes, lethal ones, are assassinations. There's, there's very few occasions where drones have actually been utilized in combat, where either fighting other soldiers, fighting soldiers or fighting other machines. Uh, we kill people like uh, Mr. Ahmadi, who's uh, coming home from work in his car. If the United States decides this person's an enemy, that's how and when they kill them, entirely against the, the laws of war. The laws of war make things bad enough, but but when when even those those minimal laws are broken, it leads to absolute chaos. The Azerbaijan used drones for uh, in combat, uh, killing soldiers on the field, and then blowing up tanks and actually attacking military targets. The U.S. has not done so far, but that's been recognized widely in the the media and military experts that this is a game changer. We don't know where things are going to go. They have on the drawing board, the United States is working on in other countries, totally autonomous drone will decide by themselves without feed into a computer what the algorithms of, of what a terrorist looks like or give the computer a uh, facial scan of somebody deemed to be a terrorist and let computer and the drone find the victim at, its, at, at, the, at the machine's time and place of choosing. It's a very dangerous thing that we're the United States is moving into, has been moving toward, but I'm just really afraid that the purported end of the Afghan war under a purportedly liberal democratic president is taking us in a very, very bad direction. And Brian, it's the psychological terror for the people on the ground when they have these drones continually in the air, watching, waiting. They're not flying today because it's a Sunday. But Creech Air Force Base, which is near here, and the reason why they, they put it here is these mountains, as I'm describing them to you, um, I've been to Afghanistan, and I've been to the mountains in the Panjshir Valley, 
some other places, and this looks very much like Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the reason why they put this here is that they, they trained the drone pilots here, is that it's, it's terrain that's very much like they would have theirs. One of the things about the drones, and they do fly them here on a normal day, they'll be like four or five in the air sometimes just circling around. The uh, predator that's being, that is still being used some, but it's mostly um, replaced with the larger Reaper drone, all these words. The engine that drives it is a little gasoline engine, the kind made for a snowmobile. And I don't know if you have them there, but they're really annoying. <laughs> machines, snow machines that rural places in the snow, these machines just have this like a just very, very annoying little drone noise. And it's kind of the banality of evil, you know, because this is these are stupid looking. There's no grandeur to this. There's nothing like you know, seeing uh, F-16 fighter planes in, in formation or seeing battleships or something. There's nothing awesome about these. These are ugly, big lumbering bugs that make an annoying, stupid noise. And the idea that, that something this banal could kill you is, I think, I think adds to the psychological effect of it. People who've lost family members, uh, just the fear alone, the idea that people from another culture, another place, thousands of miles away can fly these things with impunity over your home and watch everything that you're doing on live video, stripping people of privacy. As one drone, ex-drone pilot said that, that uh, he felt like he was the ultimate voyeur, watching people's lives from far away. There have been, in a sense, whistleblowers, previous drone pilots. Yes, there have. And, um, Daniel Hale is in prison now for, I think, four years for uh, telling us a lot of what we know. He was not a pilot himself, but he, he, was, he did a lot of the intelligence work when these drones, I, I heard him speak once, and he described being in, uh, in Florida at a U.S. Air Force base and being in a place he, he said was like a sports bar, uh, this big place full of mostly very young people. And on screens all over the room, there were the video feed from drones in various places. And part of his job was to determine, to help the other people who are actually operating the drones determine who might be a threat and help make the decisions to you know, launch the missiles and kill people. And again, these were young people who had you know, never been to Afghanistan or Pakistan or these other places, didn't know the culture. But one thing I remember him saying is that there are all these screens with all this live video feed from drones. But there was another screen that was dedicated to one simple loop that played, 10-second loop that played over and over and over again. And that was the film of the plane that slammed into the World Trade Center on, on September 11th, 2001. These young people were supposed to be making this determination about who's a danger while they're seeing in the corner of their eye over and over and over again, the destruction of the World Trade Center. So, so of course, they were, you know, that had to skew their, their way of seeing things. You know, and others who have actually been in the, you know, at the controls and firing the missiles, you know, who, who speak of being uh, horribly scarred, killing people who are thousands of miles away. I had an interesting time. I was once with... Um, I heard uh, Brandon Bryant, one of the one of the drone operators, tell a story about how 
he was from right here a few miles from where I am now. Uh, one of the first times he actually was ordered to kill someone. And there were two men in the mountains in Afghanistan, and it's wintertime, and they're carrying guns. There's a U.S. soldiers involved in a firefight with the Taliban, but they were miles away. But out of extra caution, he was told to, that these people were, were a threat to the U.S. soldiers who were there, and he had to kill them. And Brandon is from Montana, from the Rocky Mountains. This was very familiar with the scene he was seeing on the screen, and he knew about from where he lived. You wouldn't go in the forest that night in the without a gun. It just isn't done. So he knew these people were not any kind of threat. When the order came, he, he obeyed it. Uh, he knew that they were not, these men with guns in the mountains were not terrorists. They were just mountain guys like himself. At night, this was a daytime in Nevada, nighttime in Afghanistan. And at night, they use infrared cameras, heat sensitive to, to see what's going on on the ground. And when the flash from the Hellfire missile was dissipated, one of the two men was completely gone. There was no trace of him. But another man lost a leg, and he could see in great detail, because of the temperature variations, the, the heat in the blood sleeping out of his body and making a bigger pool around him, and that this man disappeared pixel by pixel as he gained the uh, ambient temperature of the, of, the, of the mountains around him. And then he was just gone. And Brandon Bryant told me that I can't sleep because I close my eyes and I see that. About that time, I met a young man who was, uh, had been in the army in Afghanistan. And he told me about how he had killed some people in firefights, that he was there and uh, getting shot at. And he shot back, and he said that he hated the war and didn't understand it. But he said, I'm over there. People are shooting at me and at my friends. And some of my friends got killed, and I shot back, and some of them got killed. And he said he hates it, but he, what he said was interesting. He said, I don't lose sleep over it. You know, as a pacifist, I don't believe in killing anybody for anything. But I can really understand the huge difference, you know, morally and psychically, if you're killing somebody who's trying to kill you is one thing, but if you're killing somebody who's thousands of miles away, who has never offended you, who can't possibly hurt you or hurt your family or bother you in any way, but you kill them. And then you see the young soldier on the ground, all he knows about these people is they're shooting at him, where Brandon Bryant would have been following these people and know something about them it's an irony that we're finding out and i think it's, it says something very good about people we're not made to kill the suffering of war is not simply that somebody is in danger somebody is being mistreated but that killing people especially people that are you know no danger to you is even more damaging than being being in in combat and being having your own life being threatened so it's a very distance of the drone operator to the victim makes it psychically more dangerous to, to the drone operator. Someone told me in the past that the, the army or the military actually go to computer game parlours, see kids who are hooked on these games and 
ask them, would you like a job, a real job, playing with these machines? Um, absolutely true. I know in my home state of Iowa, the, the, uh, in our, the capital city, the, the military recruiters would uh, um, they had their office in the uh, shopping mall right next to the arcade, and they can keep track of them. It was inter- one, one of the things, and this goes to the psychic damage, uh, the moral damage of the drone operators, is decisions are made by very, very young people with very little training. F-16 pilot, for example, the United States or any country's military is not going to let a 19-year-old kid get in the cockpit of a F-16 fighter plane worth millions of dollars. It just isn't going to happen. These are people, these are officers who've been trained for many, many years and have many, many hours of, of experience before they're put in a position to make these decisions. And the drone operators, uh, now they have uh, more training than did before, but a few years ago, it was only months. So somebody gets out of high school, goes into the military in a few months. Actually, when they fly the drones, even though it's all by computer, they, they dress up like they're going to be in an airplane. They wear a flight suit. And they're actually issued wings that they put on their uniform. So they dress up like they're in combat missions. And they're paid as, as though they were in combat because the, the, the United States military recognizes they are in battle, even though they're so many, so many miles away. So somebody pointed this out in an article in the New York Times some years ago. The discrepancy in training, a general from the Pentagon said, no, no, you're looking at it wrong. These young people have many years of training. Many of them started training when they were six years old, referring to the video games that these kids started playing. They are in training for combat. Really uh, uh, in abuse of youth. (laughs) Finally, Brian, what will you be doing over the next week? Well, one of the things that's uh, what we've done is this has been going on. I was at the first protest here in 2009 and it's evolved into these, these week-long events uh, and will be most of the military personnel at Creech don't live on the base. They live in Las Vegas. It's about 40 miles away and commute in. And so we will be tomorrow morning and then tomorrow afternoon be by the gates with signs and banners trying to communicate with the, the drone operators and, the, and their officers. But we also have done... Um, you know, thinking about trying to do what has been said about, like, trying to not just speak out, but put a stick in the spokes of the wheel of of this horrible machine. So we've done uh, blockades, some very dramatic and with lots of costuming and, and, and drama, and others very, very resolute of trying to stop the traffic. This year, not been here the uh, last year. And it's embarking on something very, very different. And it's not to try to avoid jail, but because of the COVID situation. The jail in Las Vegas, I've been in jails all over the world, and this is one of the worst ever. I think every community's jail reflects that community. And just as the extravagance of Las Vegas with its casinos and floor shows and you know neon and everything, all that gets reflected in in its jail. The jail is... is, is uh, squalid as the Las Vegas Strip is is uh, ostentatious. So it's a very, very hard place. It's it's not a place to go into now with COVID if you can avoid it. Last year, they were, had to be more creative and make uh, moving blockades. They managed quite well to, to, to stop people 
from going in for even amounts of time. You know, that might seem like not a very useful thing to do, but I think of it as for a whole lot of things uh, and, you know, that people do repetitively and, and reflectively, uh, like these people going to work at Creature Air Force Base to sometimes it's necessary to stop people in their tracks and, and give them an opportunity to think, even though they might take that as something uh, very offensive, just that we, we have to say no. And this is the, one of the ways, one of the ways we're doing it. I think of what uh, Henry David Thoreau, the American philosopher who wrote about civil disobedience, he said, this is a way, he said, vote, not just with a piece of paper, but with your whole self. We bring ourselves there, make our opposition. If there really is nobody in the United States you can vote for if you want to try to end drone warfare by drones because it's very popular with both, both of our two sad political parties. But even so, it's not enough to cast a piece of paper. We're gonna, we're, our idea is to put ourselves into it. And I, I miss the, the opportunity of being in the courts and jails I think that's uh, as, as uh, difficult as that can be. I think that's a very important part of, of the witness. But as everybody else in the world, many other people in the world are doing, we're trying to do our best in the circumstances of the time. All I can say, Brian, is stay safe. Okay, thank you. And I've been speaking with Brian Terrell, who's the coordinator of Pan Killer Drones. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Ah! On Friday, I spoke with Spencer Zifkak, who's a professor of law at Australian Catholic University here in Melbourne, and asked him first about the recent demonstrations here in Melbourne. I have to say, I don't have any sympathy for the protesters at all at this stage. I mean, I did see a shocking um, video last night of a policeman slamming some person into the ground, which seemed to me to justify his immediate dismissal. But, yeah, look, we've got a serious situation. I'm happy to talk about that. Yep. Was there disproportional use of force? I don't think it's been disproportionate. We're talking about a, a pandemic a serious pandemic, and we're talking about the health of the wider community. And given that we're talking about the health of the wider community, um, anything, particularly a mass gathering of something, which could be a super-spreading event, is likely to result in a deterioration of the health status of many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of Victorians. So I think action has to be taken to uphold the public health orders, but clearly, at the same time, um, the actions of the police in enforcing the public health order have to be reasonable, necessary and proportionate. Do you have also have a problem about the militarisation of the police? I'm not sure what you mean by the militarisation of the police. Broader concern about the militarisation of all, almost everything at the federal level, including appointing um, senior military people to undertake tasks on behalf of the government when uh, it would be much better in terms of a liberal democracy like ours if uh, these sorts of tasks remain in um, civilian hands. We've got a very serious pandemic. It's looking like uh, in the next few weeks, Victoria alone and similarly in New South Wales uh, are going to have massive spikes in cases, perhaps up to... Uh, 4,000 cases in Victoria, for example, a day. 
um, and we've never seen anything like that before. So public health orders have to be strictly enforced in order to protect members of the wider public. Stern measures need to to be taken to make sure that um, there are not people who are significantly prejudicing um, the um, health of the wider community just because they have certain minority views. What about the selective use of lockdowns, particularly in the Sydney, in the southwest area of Sydney, with police, military, dogs, horses, helicopters, you name it, they've got it. And people are very, very unhappy about that. Look, I think people have every right to be unhappy about that. I don't uh, believe in the selective use of lockdown in local government areas. I think that's a form of discrimination that ought not to occur, hasn't occurred in Victoria. The Victorian government has very sensibly removed the issue of uh, discrimination against certain classes of people by locking down the whole state. Now, one might think, golly, that's a pretty tough measure when uh, significant areas of regional Victoria or regional New South Wales may not have very much COVID. Nevertheless, the Delta strain is rocketing through uh, Victoria and uh, New South Wales currently, and we have to do something about it. So in those circumstances, I think we do. We have needed the lockdowns, however unfortunate they are, however inconvenient they are, and however angry they may make some people. People I feel particularly sorry for, I have to say, are the people on pensions and benefits and who operate small businesses and um, who are in financially precarious positions. I'm very sympathetic to them, and we ought to be um, protecting them um, preferably through the JobKeeper program that we had previously, but the federal government has decided that that they don't want to do that anymore. I want to save a bit more money, so we've got a different system now, which is not as effective. But my overall answer is I don't believe in local government area by local government area shutdowns. I think if we're going to be cutting, the community is going to join in solidarity to fight the pandemic. I don't think it's unreasonable, as in Victoria, to shut down the whole state and shutting down the whole state is uh, one means of minimising the numbers of cases that will escape from uh, the state, from the major spreading areas, which are the cities of Melbourne and Sydney. Do you believe the state government could have thought a bit harder about shutting down the building industry? Look, this is a really controversial one uh, at the moment, uh, as you know, and in particular in Victoria, because we've had significant uh, protests in the first instance by the construction industry. The problem with the construction industry issue is not that there's any particular concern about the construction union or anything like that. The problem was that the spread um, of COVID, the Delta strain, was greater in the construction industry uh, than in any other industry in the state. So we had a super spreading um, issue, most serious aspect of which was in of all of the industries was in the construction industry. And the government decided first that there was a lot of um, anti-vax feeling in some sectors of the construction industry, not the majority, I might say. The construction industry union has been very clear that it supports vaccination. But nevertheless, uh, there was a lot of anti-vax feeling in the construction industry. And that was combined with the fact that the COVID pandemic had, uh, in the few days beforehand, increased exponentially within the construction industry. So the government decided that the best thing to do was shut it down and um, deal with that exponential increase in cases. 
And I don't think that that was an unreasonable uh, thing to do. We're talking about international human rights law. Uh, a whole lot of freedoms in international human rights uh, treaties are really important, freedom of assembly being one of them. So I've got no problem with pro protests per se, but when protests clearly adversely affecting the health of the wider community, international human rights treaties say that um, freedom of assembly, uh, which is the one we're talking about, may be constrained in the interests of preserving the public health of the wider community, and that's what we've been doing. Do you believe that governments have ignored the far right for too long? Yes, I think they've been too focused on Islamic terrorism uh, and have been complacent about the rise of far right thinking and action. Thankfully, we haven't had any major terrorist incident in Australia uh, initiated by far-right extremist groups at this stage, but we only need to think across uh, to our neighbours in New Zealand where we had 55 people shot by a far-right activist who was in fact Australian. It is, as the uh, Director-General of ASIO now has now said publicly, the threat from far-right extremism uh, and far-right, possibly far-right terrorism, uh, that represents the greatest threat to public safety and not uh, Islamic terrorism. Currently. Yes, I think we have been complacent and um, we should have been on to this a lot earlier. Is the genie out of the bottle? I don't know. I don't sit in Asia, so I don't know whether the, uh, whether the genie is out of the bottle. All we can say is that uh, over the last few years, clearly, far-right extremism uh, has become an increasingly significant issue and problem in a not dissimilar way than it had uh, in the United States, uh, which led, of course, to the... Uh, raiding of the capital by a whole host of far-right extremists, in effect attempting to t overturn um, the results of a democratic election. We don't want that kind of demonstration here, and uh, the intelligence agency should have been onto this a lot earlier, in my view. Well, staying with human rights, and we've got the appointment to an important position that for the Australian Human Rights Commissioner, mm. the person to fill the position is Lorraine Finlay. There's been yes. a lot of complaints about her choice or the choice of her, what is her background that has upset a number of prominent people? Well, she's um, an academic in Western Australia. You know, my life is human rights, uh, so I know quite a bit about this. To put the matter plainly, I've never heard of Lorraine Finlay. She's a complete non-entity in the human rights community of Australia. That's the first issue. Why on earth would the government appoint a non-entity to a human rights position? As far as I'm aware, secondly, um, she doesn't know much about human rights. And has to tell you, when she has stepped into the field, um, her interventions have been, shall I say, generously somewhat strange uh, and um, in a certain measure uh, ignorant. Lorraine Finlay has been a paid-up member of the Institute of Public Affairs, the far-right uh, think tank based in New South Wales, and has played a prominent role in the work of the, International, the Institute of Public Affairs in Western Australia. And she is a friend of the government. She is a, has been chair, as I understand it, of the um, Liberal Party's women's membership group. So she doesn't come to this with uh, any kind of measure or neutrality, she is a political partisan, and that's the reason that the 
human rights community is complaining. The person you need as the Australian Human Rights Commission is somebody who is fair and balanced uh, and knowledgeable uh, and who has had a long history of involvement uh, in human rights because it's a really important job and she's got none of those things. What is the role of the Commissioner? The role of the Commissioner is to act as the foremost advocate for the protection and advancement of human rights in Australia. That's, that's the role. And in doing that, uh, the Commissioner must be fully aware of and learned in international human rights law because it's international human rights law as it is applied in Australia that provide the foundation of the Commissioner's work. Lorraine Finlay uh, is not that person. Has it always been a political appointment? No, not at all. Um, it could always have been a political appointment, but it's only the last two appointments, really, that we can say uh, have been uh, politicised. Lorraine Finlay, and then there was a, an appointment of uh, another person, Ed Santo, which was also a political appointment uh, immediately before this. And that appointment was made by the then um, Attorney General uh, of the Commonwealth, George Brandis, and he also made a political decision. Well, she's going to be there for quite a while, isn't she? She's got a five-year term, yep, at a rather large salary, I might say, and uh, she's not qualified for it. Uh, there's a, quite a lot of very large salaries going around at the moment, aren't there? <laughs> there are. Far too many, in my view. Far too many. <laughs> OK, well, let's get on to um, Senator Rex Patrick, and he's had a go at the federal government about the National Cabinet. You're concerned mm. about that as well? Yes, I'm very concerned about that. What the government has done here, it's participated in National Cabinet and for reasons that I'm not entirely clear about, except that the government is, generally speaking, is very wedded to secrecy in uh, governmental affairs, the government has decided that what it wants to do is throw a cloak of secrecy over all of the deliberations and decisions of the National Cabinet. I think that's a rather astonishing decision given how important the National Cabinet is. The Australian public has a clear public interest in knowing about what the National Cabinet is talking about, what decisions it's taken, what criteria it uses, whether... Um, uh, health criteria or other criteria to formulate the policies which um, through the National Cabinet seek to coordinate action against uh, the pandemic uh, right across Australia. Now it's a really important body. There is a clear public interest in the Australian public being informed in detail about the way in which the Cabinet has gone about its decision-making and what those decisions, the National Cabinet uh, has gone about those decisions and um, <coughs> how they uh, have affected the governmental reaction to the pandemic. Now, controversial aspect of all of this is the confidentiality of it. And this is what Rex Patrick was seeking to um, challenge uh, when he put in a Freedom of Information request for details as to uh, the... Uh, decisions uh, that Federal Cabinet has been making and the justifications for them. The government uh, responded to Rex Patrick's request on that basis by saying, no, sorry, we regard the National Cabinet as being part of the Federal Cabinet. And given that the Federal Cabinet's proceedings, that is its deliberations and decisions are secret, 
uh, it follows naturally that the decisions and deliberations of the national cabinet are confidential. One of the things I teach is constitutional law, and that is a, a fundamental constitutional error. The national cabinet cannot be regarded as a subcommittee of the federal cabinet. Uh, there are a host of reasons for that. The primary reason is that if you have a national cabinet of any kind, according to uh, the constitutional doctrine of responsible government, that cabinet must be responsible to the Commonwealth Parliament. That's how it works. And the national cabinet is not responsible to the Commonwealth Parliament. The individual members of the cabinet, uh, the national cabinet, are responsible to each of their state cabinets and not to the federal cabinet. And the federal government, the prime minister, can't just by saying that the name of it is a national cabinet and therefore it ought to be treated as a federal cabinet, make it a subcommittee of the federal cabinet. That's not possible. Rex Patrick challenged that assumption and the confidentiality that goes with it. And he went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Administrative Appeals Tribunal threw out, threw out the argument properly, quite properly on the, on the ground that I've just put in. But the Prime Minister is not happy with that. So legislation has been introduced into the federal parliament to declare that the National Cabinet is a subcommittee of the federal cabinet. problem with that is that it's clearly not a subcommittee of the federal cabinet. What the Prime Minister is saying was, well, we're going to legislate to say that it is, but actually, uh, on no consideration, is it a committee of the federal cabinet? So we've got a very strange situation here, but it has to be resolved constitutionally. And constitutionally, the position is clear. The National Cabinet is not responsible in any way to the federal cabinet. The federal cabinet has no say, as it would over a proper cabinet committee, over the work of the national cabinet. The two are quite separate, something that is plainly a, an unconstitutional assertion. The Human Rights Commission is right, and the Justice of the Supreme Court, who sat on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, has said the same thing is right. The situation is as clear as day constitutionally, and I have no idea why the government uh, decided that this was a good way of trying to uh, throw the cloak of secrecy over the National Cabinet. Extraordinarily ham-fisted uh, legal move which cannot possibly succeed. The Administrative Appeals Tribunal has produced a decision. I've read all 50 pages of it. It's very good. Um, and I think the High Court will uphold that. But uh, the problem with going to the High Court is it costs an absolute fortune. Frex Patrick were to take the matter further He'd better do a lot of crowdfunding because he wouldn't, wouldn't be able to afford it. And then there's the question, why do they want to keep all these deliberations secret? Um, I can understand that might want to keep the deliberations of the National Cabinet uh, confidential. Very difficult to make um, clear uh, and measured decisions if you've got media and uh, non-governmental organisations, a whole host of people looking at every step you make um, when you're discussing what ought to happen. So I've got no problem about the deliberations of uh, the National Cabinet being secret. You don't need to create a Cabinet committee to do that. All you have to do is uh, legislate to say that um, the National Cabinet is an exempt agency for the purposes of freedom of information uh, with respect to its deliberations. It's pretty simple to do that. But uh, that's the way the government has uh, sought to do this. I've been speaking with Spencer Zifkak, who is Professor at Law at Australian Catholic University. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to communities since 1976.
Now the second and final part of my interview with Sasha Gillies Lakakis looking at the recent history of Peru. We pick up with Sasha talking about the political aspirant Kaiko Fujimura, who's the daughter of the former president Alberto Fujimura, who was in jail serving a 25-year sentence for crimes including corruption and human rights abuses. And that's the other aspect of her political um, platform. She says she would fully pardon her father if she was made president of Peru to essentially grant him immunity for all of the terrible crimes that he committed. And this is, again, something that resonates with this group of what are called Fujimoristas, or the Fujimorists, who are the hardcore supporters of Fujimori's political vision. But she loses by about 2% in the end. And Humala wins. He implements these policies. But of course, in late 2015, uh, early 2016, he is implicated in the Odebrecht corruption scandal. Now, this, of course, had ramifications across Latin America. It involved a lot of uh, embezzlement and bribery charges being laid against chiefly leftist leaders, actually. And this was often uh, either exaggerated, blown out of proportion or outright manipulated. But it was, it was used to bring down a lot of leftist governments, including in Brazil and in Argentina and in Peru. Ollanta Humala is accused of having received illicit funds from the Odebrecht construction company before it went bankrupt. Now, he has always denied the charges uh, as to what exactly he did, why exactly he would have accepted the money, because, you know, there was no project it was linked to. He isn't really well known for these sorts of corrupt acts. It's not something he's done. But regardless, the Peruvian Congress votes to impeach him. Uh, now, the Peruvian Congress was dominated by Keiko Fujimori's popular force, even though she lost the presidential election due to the geographic distribution of the seats in Peru's congressional elections. Her party dominates the Congress. And they were able to pass this, um, this impeachment through quite easily. And Ollanta Humala is brought down. Um, he was actually arrested. And he's now also, he is fighting these legal challenges. He, he didn't end up getting sent to jail, but his government is kicked out of office. And in 2016, what we have is another businessman, Pedro Kuczynski, Polish descent, but born in Peru. And his centre-right party, Peruanos por el Cambio, Peruvians for Change, essentially takes up the anti-Fujimori mantle. Even though he is still just a centre-right neoliberal, he says that he wants to see Kaka Fujimori and her father brought to trial for their crimes. And he ends up, again, defeating Keiko Fujimori in the 2016 election. Again, it was very close of only two or three percentage points. Uh, but he defeats her again. But once again, Fujimori's party runs the Congress. They receive a majority of seats. And, of course, this is the way Peru's Congress is meant to run, of course. You know, it's not a democratic system. It's, it's meant to favour those regions where the conservative vote dominates. And that is, of course, where the, Fuji, the Fujimorista vote dominates. Now, Kuczynski, again, he's, he's a very incompetent, corrupt, centre-right neoliberal. Peruvians don't exactly like him, but they would rather vote for him as opposed to Fujimori retract the control of the state. He encourages foreign investment and privatisation throughout his term. He becomes deeply unpopular, and it doesn't help that, again, in 2018, the Fujimoristas, popular force, they vote to impeach him again. Now, before this impeachment vote uh, actually comes around, Kuczynski ends up bribing other members of the Congress to try and get them to vote in his favour against the impeachment, now, popular force and the left-wing parties find this out. 
and they publicise it. They say, look, he's just as corrupt as the previous politicians. He should be impeached. Um, and there's a massive backlash against him, against Kaczynski and his party. And what he ends up doing, rather than getting impeached and having that to his name, is he just resigns because, because he admits it that he did bribe a number of Congress, uh, congressmen and congresswomen to try and reverse the vote of the impeachment. Now, it's unlikely that would have worked anyway, because as I said, popular force ran the Congress. The closest ally of his transport minister, Martin Vizcarra, takes over. He takes over in 2018. He's an interesting individual. Again, he's a centre-right neoliberal, but he is not known for being corrupt. In fact, there are no corruption scandals up until 2020 that can be put to his name. And that is quite a feat in Peruvian politics, to be honest. He enjoys quite favourable polls, quite favourable opinions among most Peruvians for a time. Uh, one poll suggested that about 55 to 58% of Peruvians approved of his leadership. He ends up pushing this fight against corruption uh, that Kuczynski had said he was going to, to initiate. And he actually ends up managing to get Fujimori, Keiko Fujimori, charged both with drug smuggling because her and a number of her high-ranking confidants in the Popular Force Party were found to have been involved in cocaine trafficking, but also embezzlement, which uh, the Peruvian right-wing had used to overthrow a left-wing candidate. But it turned out that the right-wing was even more involved in the corruption with that construction company. And now, once again, she's been put under house arrest. She was briefly in actual jail. But, of course, her allies and her wealth have meant that she can keep on fighting this, much like her father has. So, again, it's still inconclusive in terms of what's actually going to happen, what the actual punishment for Keiko Fujimori will be. Martin Vizcarra might well have won the next election in, in this year, in 2021, had the COVID-19 pandemic not arrived in 2020. Now, this completely overturned uh, what, what little uh, Vizcarra was doing. The Peruvian state completely failed in its attempt to protect Peruvians. Uh, currently, Peru has 2.16 million cases of COVID-19 and almost 200,000 deaths. It's one of the worst affected countries in Latin America and in the world. Hospitals in some rural regions collapsed. Hospitals in some poorer parts of Lima, the capital, collapsed. Healthcare workers were being worked to, ex to absolute exhaustion. It was just a horrific state of affairs in Peru. The straw that broke the camel's back for most Peruvians was that Martin Vizcarra and his cabinet were involved in a vaccine corruption scandal. It was found out that he and his government were obtaining vaccines for themselves, just for members of the Peruvian government and their family members, and not the whole population. Now, this was just met with outrage um, across Peru. There were no protests, but his popularity plummeted to below the 50% mark. And what ended up happening is that popular force, Keiko Fujimori's party, took its chance again, and they began impeachment proceedings against Martin Vizcarra. So we can see a pattern here. Popular force, whenever they get the chance, try to impeach the president, or the, the opposition president, because, of course, they've never won an election. Now, Martin Vizcarra, again, the, the grounds for, for his impeachment are not that strong. I mean, you know, this COVID corruption scandal is not the worst corruption scandal that's happened in Peru in terms of the actual quantities of money and resources and contracts involved. In fact, it's quite tame because it's only for a few government ministers. But nonetheless, they do end up impeaching him on moral incapacity. That's the charge that popular force lays against him, which is, again, an incredibly ambiguous political charge, which they could use as they please. So he is impeached in late 2020, November 2020, 
and the Popular Force Parliament, or Congress, chooses Manuel Merlino, who is uh, a far-right candidate, and they choose him to lead the Peruvian interim government, and he forms a far-right cabinet. Now, this is met with outrage by Peruvians. They go to protest in the streets in the tens of thousands. They even try to storm the presidential palace uh, because they see this for what it is. You know, as, as bad as Martin Vizcarra's vaccine scandal was, uh, this is just a clear power play by the far right and by Keiko Fujimori. They end up protesting for weeks, tens of thousands of people, particularly young Peruvians who have been hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, the results of unemployment and all the stresses that that brought. Two people ended up being killed by the Peruvian police. Uh, and the protests got so large and so serious that Merlino ended up resigning. And he was replaced with Francisco Sagasti, who, again, is just a centre-right moderate in the Congress. He's one from one of the traditional parties. But Popular Force could work with him. And he ends up taking over and, say, and setting the election date for 2021, which, of course, brings us to the most recent and hotly contested election. We have the results now. Yes. So the first round was conducted in early April and it was an upset. People were not expecting Pedro Castillo of the Free Peru Party or Peru Libre uh, to win. He was hinge far left party up until this election, uh, but he ended up winning the most votes out of all of the candidates in the first round. Now, it wasn't a full 10% lead over the second highest voting party, so they had to go to a second round, uh, and that was conducted in June. Now, of course, the second highest voting party was Keiko Fujimori's popular force, uh, of course, relying on her almost unbreakable block of Fujimoristas. And now this was an incredibly tense election. It was incredibly close. It was nail-biting, in fact. So Pedro Castillo, he is a former, uh, he's a former teacher from a, from a rural area of Peru called Cajamarca, which is in the highlands where there's a large indigenous community. And he was selected by the Free Peru Party because he's an instantly recognisable figure among working-class Peruvians and indigenous Peruvians. He led a teacher strike, uh, a nationwide teacher strike in 2017, he didn't budge at all. He managed to force the government into negotiations and he got a number of concessions in, in terms of increasing wages, having you know less students in each class, better paid leave and holiday time, and better resourcing for, poor, for rural schools. So he's a very popular um, individual. He's charismatic. He relates very well with poorer Peruvians. So they selected him as their candidate. Um, and, of course, Keiko Fujimori was running as the presidential candidate for her party, also because since she is the leader of a Peruvian party, and this is in Peruvian law, um, she cannot be charged until charged with any crime until the verdict of the election is decided. So if she had won, she could have granted herself immunity, and she was immune for the duration of the election of, or of the electoral season. So this is also a way for her, this was quite significant for her because she wanted to win, if only to protect herself and grant herself and her father immunity. The Peruvians uh, head to the polls and it is incredibly close. So Pedro Castillo wins 50.13% compared to Keiko Fujimori's 49.87%. It was a vote difference of only about 100,000 votes, even less, I, I think, and, of course, this created a really tense situation after the election. So Pedro Castillo had dominated in the highlands, which is a sort of central... It's a sort of the central part of Peru that runs through the mountains where most Indigenous people live. 
and in the South, which is almost entirely Indigenous, you, you almost had no votes for Keiko Fujimori in the southern parts of the country. And Keiko Fujimori, of course, dominated in the coastal areas where the large cities are, where her anti-communist propaganda uh, was most intense, where it could be relayed on television and on radio and on billboards, uh, and in the northern Amazon, where a lot of conservative landowners live. So that's where she dominated and Pedro Castillo dominated in the highlands and the southern region of Peru. But he won. Now, Keiko Fujimori, at first, she did not recognise the election result. It's fraud that we need to we need to go out in force. The Fujimoristas need to protest. She was essentially trying to pull a bit of a Trump in her own way. And her supporters did. They did march, um, particularly in the capital in Lima. Now, of course, Pedro, Pedro Castillo, he also went out and he said, we have to defend our election. We've clearly won. It was close, but, but there's a clear mandate for us. And we need to defend our victory. And, of course, his supporters went out into the streets across the country and in, and in Lima, in the capital. It could have been a potentially really serious confrontation between these two forces. But thankfully, at the end, Keiko Fujimori decided to rescind her claims of fraud and she accepted Pedro Castillo as the victor of the Peruvian elections. Now, this wasn't the only conspiracy that was sort of being fermented against uh, the Free Peru Party. There was a number of military officers, not high-ranking generals, but colonels and lieutenants, that were also in talks with members of Popular Force. They were investigated and that was put to rest. Uh, and there was also a, a plot by Alberto Fujimori's former special Forces or Intelligence Ministry, um, Vladimiro Montesinos, he was the head of the ministry, and he was also attempting to orchestrate some sort of uprising or coup against Pedro Castillo, and that also failed. Uh, Castillo was sworn in on July 28th, the 200th uh, anniversary of Peru's independence. Um, he's a complex individual. He's undoubtedly on the left, but I wouldn't say he's the most radical of the Free Peru party members. Obviously, he was selected for his popularity. He said that one of the main focuses of his economic policy will be to dramatically increase taxes on foreign mining corporations. Initially, he was talking about total nationalisation, but this scared investors. It scared a lot of middle-class Peruvians. It scared a lot of people generally because of the fear-mongering. So he ended up moderating his tone just to taxes. We'll, we'll see what he ends up doing. But he's also, he's, he's conservative in other ways, particularly in the, the social sphere. He's, um, he is an evangelical, and so is his, his wife and his children. You know, that's quite common even among poorer Peruvians. Religion is, is very dominant in Peruvian society. And he's expressed quite conservative, conservative attitudes towards women's rights and LGBT rights and that sort of thing. But it's not the outright hostility that, for example, Keiko Fujimori has expressed towards those groups. Um, but important to mention nonetheless, perhaps as far left, for example, as, as Venezuela's leaders or as Cuba's leaders, but he's definitely, he's definitely radical. And it's helped by the fact that the leader of the party, Vladimir Serron, is an out-and-out out communist. He was trained and educated in Cuba. He has a great admiration for Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. He has the ultimate say on the political policies of the Free Peru Party and on the economic policies of the party, so I, I believe the blend of those two working together, um, of course, there's tensions, but I think ultimately it's going to be a pretty dynamic 
term in office, and it's going to be quite good for most Peruvians. Pedro Castillo has asked the Chinese to send large amounts of the Sinopharm vaccine to Peru to be used amongst the everyday Peruvians um, because Peru's been unable to get vaccines. They've only ended up vaccinating just about 30% of their population fully. Somewhat similar to Australia, actually, um, but even less, even less than us, I think. And he's also in talks with Russia's President Putin to establish a Sputnik V production plant in Peru so that Peru can have a domestic, domestically produced supply of vaccines for its population. Um, and he's already increased the pension. Even in the first few months of his presidency, the composition of the Congress this time around is important because popular force doesn't have a majority like it did in the past. Pedro Castillo's party, the Peru Peru Libre, has just over a third of, of the party seats. Uh, popular force has just under a third. And in between that, we have a range of centre-right, centre-left, centre-parties, all of which are up for grabs in terms of negotiations. So popular force doesn't have the same advantage it had in, in previous electoral battles. They did actually move to impeach Pedro Castillo, not even a month after his election, which, you know, probably shouldn't have surprised anyone, um, but they couldn't get the numbers for the first time, you know, out of the, the three previous times they were able to succeed, but this time the Congress didn't allow it. And that's because Pedro Castillo has actually been able to find common ground with a few of the other, particularly with one of the other centre-left parties. He's managed to hold popular force at bay, and Keiko Fujimori has lost her immunity. So now the corruption trial against her has actually begun as of about two weeks ago. She's now being held again under house arrest. So overall, I mean, it's a dire situation in Peru at the moment. But overall, I would say it's actually, it's quite promising for Pedro Castillo. He's, he doesn't have to deal with a lot of the obstacles that the Fujimoristas actually created for previous governments. Uh, their power has been broken. There was a massive groundswell of anti-Fujimori sentiment, particularly after uh, she declared fraud, she, she accused Castillo of fraud. Because even, even some people who maybe once would have supported her, I mean, they, they're not idiots. They know that there's no way a poor former school teacher from an obscure party can actually orchestrate national fraud. If anything, Fujimori could orchestrate national fraud. You know, she doesn't enjoy as clearly she's never enjoyed the support of the majority. She's never won an election or three elections that she has run in. She's lost. Even though it was close, she has lost. And we can't forget that even uh, even outside of those people that vote, those Peruvians that decide not to vote, a large majority of them are also against Keiko Fujimori. Um, in fact, there's a massive, there's a foundation in Peru, um, the Noa no Fujimorismo Foundation, or no to Fujimorism, which is which has thousands and thousands and thousands of members, and that's just dedicated to raising awareness about the crimes of Alberto Fujimori. It's looking positive at the moment for Peru, cautiously optimistic. His catch cry was mm -hmm. and is no more poor in a rich country. Can he do it? Yeah, well, this is the thing, and of course, this is why he he spoke so much about mining and mining taxes during his election because you're exactly right and he and he's correct when he says that Peru is an enormously wealthy country as we said it's endowed with with mineral wealth that few other countries on earth have um, and particularly because as I said it's a mixture of, of productive metals and of precious metals and, and precious minerals so there's immense amounts of money being produced in Peru but it's all being taken abroad by foreign corporations and the local oligarchy now, can he do it? I think, I think he might be able to. He's already in negotiations to increase the mining taxes 
I don't know if he'll go the road the road of total nationalisation of some of these mines. I think that would be the ideal, but I, I can see what would happen to him. I can see the right wing reaction against that. I think at the very least we can expect that, that most poor and indigenous Peruvians will live a lot better under Pedro Castillo. He's clearly a genuine individual. He's clearly a genuine politician, as is his political party. And as I said, he, you know, he's made improving social services like education and healthcare and housing a priority for this government. You know, that's why he enjoyed such popular support in the highlands and in the south, because he said this is going to be the first actual indigenous government in Peru. And, and, you know, that's true, and I, and I don't doubt that he is going to implement these policies. So at the very least, even though he might encounter some challenges in the mining aspect of things, um, I don't doubt that he will, incre- he will dramatically increase living standards for most poor Peruvians in the years to come. And you've been listening to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, and you can hear more of Sasha on the Latin American program each Sunday morning, 10.30 on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.